0: If you're looking to brunch today, we recommend hitting up Walters in Navy Yard, where for $20 you can add Bottomless Truly, Bud Light, Mimosas, Bloody Marys, and now DC Brow Seltzer. Tonight, DC United returns to Audi Field for a matchup against Orlando City. Come watch the Nats take on Arizona at 4 p.m. before you head over to the match. Vamos United! We're driven by the search for better. But when it
1: comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all Just go to Indeed.com slash wire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash wire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Here's the big swing at a ground ball sharply hit through the shift and by a diving Trey Turner in to score is Escobar. As Peralta goes to third, and Barshow on at first with a single to right center. And the Diamondbacks having themselves a big bottom of the first inning. Three runs are home,
2: still only one out. Ross has the sign he wants. He sets at the belt. The runners go. The 3-2 pitch is hit deep to right center field. Back goes Soto to the track, to the wall. It is long, long gone. 6-2 Arizona, three-run shot for Escobar, his eighth of the year. And Ross
1: pays big time for the loss of control here in the fourth inning. Hello and welcome
3: to Nats Chat. I'm Tim Shover's producer of this podcast joined by Mark Zuckerman of Massinsports.com. Al has the night off. Don't worry though he will be back at it tomorrow for the series finale against the Diamondbacks. I'm just here to eat up some innings. Mark, I know it is late and it's been a busy stretch for the team and an off day is far away. But I do have one trivia question for you at the end of this, and I promise it's not
0: too lethal. Okay, uh, I can stay up late and try to keep my mind fresh for that one. But let's just start off by saying, you know, this is Al's first day off this season. I would not have pegged him for being really savvy. Like, this is a veteran move to take off a late night Saturday game that turned into a total dud. Like, he knew something. He knew what he was doing. That's a move that I should be making. That's not a move that I expect him to be making this early in his podcasting career. So credit to Al for picking a good night to take off. We're going to have to try to make this one into something without him because we don't have Al and we didn't exactly have the most exciting game to talk about.
3: Well, I think you said the bar though with that Saturday afternoon game at Yankee Stadium, a two and a half hour <laughs> rain delay after a night game, extra innings, about 14 different changes to your game story if you, would, if you had worked it. So we're just all trying to catch up to your premonitions.
0: Yeah, no, that was a good one. That's my one for the year. I will never take a better day off than that one. I I won't luck out like that again.
3: Al had the day off, and the Nats had a rough one. They lost 11-4 in Mark's hometown of Phoenix, Arizona. Joe Ross allows eight runs in just four-plus innings. Nats leave 11 men on base. Another game of double-digit men stranded on the base pass. Kyle Schwarber stranded eight men himself. We'll get to that later. But Mark, let's start with Ross, who got roughed up in the first. He allowed four straight hits to begin his evening, briefly settled down, and then the wheels fell off for good in the fourth. Can you pinpoint what was off with Ross tonight?
0: He was up in the zone, and you could see it right from the start. And It's funny because before the game, David Martinez even mentioned that the key to Ross's success is he's got to be down in the zone. We've talked about it before. Him and Eric Fetty, the same kind of thing. You're a sinker baller. You don't have blow-away stuff. You can't be leaving the ball waist high and above. They're going to be able to hit it. You've got to be down in the zone. So he was missing up. But on top of that, the Diamondbacks were being ultra aggressive against him. First four batters he faced, all hits, and it took a total of 10 pitches to do it. So they were on him from the start. They weren't waiting around. They weren't letting him even have a chance to get ahead in the count. He was actually throwing strikes. 19 of 24 pitches in the first inning were strikes. But in a way, maybe he was getting too much of the zone, certainly up in the zone, and they made him pay for it. and That just set a bad tone for the rest of the night. And He recovered a little bit, and he had a chance to maybe get through this without a lot of damage. It kind of fell apart, like you said, after that. But right from the get-go, you could see it was going to be a tough night for him because he was not locating that sinker down in the zone. It's waist high and above, and they made him pay for it
3: to me, the biggest disappointment of the night, though, was not Ross. It was not taking advantage of Arizona's starter, Seth Frankoff, who was making his 2021 debut, very little big league experience, two wild pitches in the first inning. Trey Turner did score a leadoff double. But did you agree with me that the Nats really missed a big opportunity to jump out to a big lead by only scoring one run off of struggling new starter?
0: Yeah, it felt like that. I mean, he looked Out of whack early on. And this is not, there are some pitchers that you see sometimes that you've never heard of. And it turns out they're, you know, decent prospects. And this is just the start of something. That's not the case with Mr. Frankoff. 32 years old. He had pitched in three big league games, all in relief one for the Cubs a few years ago and two for the Mariners last year. He went to Korea in between and pitched for two seasons. He won 18 games in uh, 2018. So this is not a, an up-and-comer. This is a guy who finally got his chance to start a big league game and made the most of it to his credit. But I mean, he looked shaky early on. You're right, that first inning, they get a double from Turner. Harrison walks, there's a wild pitch, two wild pitches. Soto has a chance to do something and he ends up grounding out to score the runner. And then Schwarber strikes out the first of two big strikeouts in the game for him. And yeah, it felt like there was an opportunity there to do what they did last night which was score 17 runs, get off to a quick start. They didn't do it at all. And when you combine only scoring one in the top of the first with then Ross giving up three in the bottom of the first, it just set a bad tone for the game. And I know they were still in it until the fourth, but it sort of felt like it was an uphill climb because of it. The missed opportunity there combined with Ross not pitching well out out of the gates.
3: There's some more stuff with Ross I want to touch upon, but it ties into Sunday. So we'll get to that in a second. Let's switch over to the lineup. And there's two guys I'd like to focus on. The first is Juan Soto. He had two hits in this game, two RBIs. The first time that he has had two hits and two RBIs since the Friday night victory at Yankee Stadium. This really, you could say, has sort of been his first slump of his career. I don't know if you agree with that word, the dreaded S word there. But do you think this game could be a potential turning point for Soto as he's still ramping back up from off the IL?
0: So he felt pretty encouraged by it afterwards. And he said that yesterday before the game, before Friday's opener, he was talking with Kevin Long, the hitting coach, trying to figure some things out. They feel like the timing's a little bit off, especially on the fastball. And they're working on some things, trying to, to get the timing down. And in Friday's game, the game when the Nats score 17 runs, and Soto really wasn't much of a part of it until late. And he was encouraged by the last two at bats he had when he started to hit the ball hard to include a lot RBI single. In the eighth inning, and he felt like that carried over into Saturday's game, and he was really pleased with the at-bats in this one. He's hitting it hard. Now, he's still hitting it on the ground. He's not elevating it at all. He did not, the four balls he put into play in this game, none of them landed more than 77 feet from him, from the plate, so it's not even leaving the infield on the fly. That he feels like is a small adjustment. He just needs to be out in front of it a little more and, you know, driving the ball up in the air. He thinks that will come. So he feels like there is an encouraging sign here. I agree. I mean, I think this is like one of the first times we've ever really seen him in anything more than two or three games, not look himself. I'm sure the time off because of the injury didn't help a whole lot, but he's getting there and he is both too talented and works too hard to let this go on for too long. And so I expect there's going to be a day here probably on this road trip that we're looking back and saying, "Okay, hey, yeah, remember when he was in a slump?" Ha ha ha. Cuz he just went 3 for 4 with a homer and a double.
3: So, you would agree that we can use the S word. Anyone else would we give it to but him? It's <laughs> it, it's a different bar. So, I want to know if it's appropriate.
0: Yeah, I think so. These were the numbers through the his second at bat on Saturday's game. 6 for his last 32, no doubles, one homer. 5 RBI. So by Soto standards, yeah, that's a slump. Now if it's uh, you know, Josh Bell, that's a hot streak. So, you know, that's not <laughs> the same standard that he has set than Juan Soto has set. <laughs> Sorry Josh, but it's true right now at least. So yeah, I mean Soto set the bar so high that it takes something pretty remarkable to be considered a slump, but I think what he has been in, you can just tell watching him, he just doesn't really look like himself. He's just not hitting the ball with authority the way that we're used to, but it's not going to last much longer. I'm confident in saying that.
3: Still was treated with a lot of respect. Basically intentionally walked in the fifth inning. You could tell they were pitching around him. And that led to the big moment of the game where the Nats had one more chance to get back into it. Top of the fifth. Bases loaded. They're down 6-2. Kyle Schwarber up to bat. He represents the tying run. He's facing, oddly enough, left-hander Alex Young. That is who Schwarber homered off of in D.C. for that Friday night one nothing walk-off victory. And it ended up being a very tough evening for Schwarber. He strikes out. That's three of the eight runners in which Schwarber stranded on the evening.
1: And now Young sets and the 0-2 swing and a miss. Struck him out with the cutter.
3: And with that, Mark, I know you and Al every single day talk about the lineup and how it's been floating around and the Vanna White wardrobe changes. But do you like him as Soto's protection? Because that was a very stark moment there of Arizona was not going to pitch to Soto. They were pitching to the next guy and they were
0: able to strike him out. Well, and they were pitching to him because they knew they could bring the lefty in to face him. So that was like the double whammy there. Yeah, I mean, the way he's going, no, I don't love him as Soto's protection. The problem is who do you trust as Soto's protection right now? I've been saying since spring training, when we've been talking about lineup possibilities, I think Trey Turner is the best protection for Juan Soto. Teams are going to pitch around him no matter what. But if you're saying who would you most trust to come up to bat with runners on base after Soto is walked, To me, it's Trey Turner. And so that's why I personally would go Harrison one, Soto two, Turner three right now. I understand why that's not the case. He has tried Trey at the three spot and he hasn't been all that successful at it. So I get it. But to me, he's the only one at the moment that I truly trust There, I guess Zimmerman on the days that he plays. But look, we've seen Ryan Zimmerman be the protection for Bryce Harper, for Juan Soto. It may work here and there, but in the long run, That's really not who he should be at this stage of his career. So they just don't have that guy. And this is going to be a problem all year long is that especially when Juan Soto starts to get hot again, he's going to be pitched around all the time. And if the hitter coming up behind him can't get the job done with any consistency, they are going to struggle to score runs. So I do think that is a problem. I think it also, though, underscores something else I wanted to say. I want to go back to Joe Ross here for one thing. The decision to let him hit for himself in the top of the fifth. To start that inning. He looked shaky in the fourth, gave up the home run. It's six to two now. He's at 80 pitches. He's gonna lead off the fifth. And I thought it was a good time to just pull the plug, say, you know what? You gave us what you could. We've got guys in the bullpen we can turn to. Let's try to score some runs here on this 32-year-old rookie. Now, I know Joe Ross reached base, it was on an error, so it's not like that directly affected it, but he came back in the fifth and only faced two batters. It did not go well, and all of a sudden he's out of the game. So was that worth it? when maybe you could have put someone else up there, Andrew Stevenson, somebody else to lead off that inning as a pinch hitter. And maybe that inning plays a little differently if you do that. I thought that was an opportunity to be more aggressive offensively. And Davey didn't do that. And you know who knows what would have happened otherwise. But it certainly wasn't worth it just to get two more at-bats out of Ross in the fifth inning because he didn't retire either batter. And that was it. That was the end of his night.
3: I'm glad you mentioned that. And I totally agreed with you in the moment. I thought that they should have pinch hit for him. And just end his day after four innings. I was surprised by that. Oddly enough, it worked out. As you said, he gets on base, but then quickly he gets the hook in the fifth, and rightfully so. As I was running through it in my head, the only reason why it made sense to send him back out there for at least one more inning was because Fetty's pitching on Sunday. Do you think if Corbin or Scherzer were pitching on Sunday and they weren't anticipating using the bullpen more, then maybe Davey would have yanked him in the top of the fifth?
0: That could be part of the equation, and Davey did mention the bullpen in explaining that decision and saying, they don't have any off days here for a while. They're in a stretch where they are playing every day, and he does have to be mindful of the bullpen's workload, and so perhaps that was on his mind. Now, that said, he used Austin Voth in the ninth inning of this blowout game.
3: Well, because Hernan Perez was not
0: available. That is true. (laughs) You're right. This would have been a good Hernan Perez game if ever there was one. So if you're willing to use Voth for an inning in the ninth, then I'm assuming he's not pitching on Sunday. Maybe he, he goes back to back days, but I'm not sure Voth has done that yet this year. Maybe he did it once. I'm not sure he has. So if Voth was going to be able to pitch today anyways, why not let him start the fifth and then maybe pitch the sixth as well? And that helps save a few other arms for down the road. So I, I don't know. There's a lot of parts of this equation. It's very easy in the moment to say you should have done this, should have done that. And what the manager's job is is to consider what to do tonight that doesn't negatively affect tomorrow. When you get to September and October, it's a different story. You go for broke. And that's why you saw Davey manage so aggressively in the playoffs in 2019. And it worked beautifully. He did a great job at it. So sometimes when we criticize his managerial decisions right now, we're not thinking about the big picture. We're more focused on just trying to win that game. So I get where he's coming from. But just in my mind, forget everything else. Just watching Joe Ross, I didn't feel like he had another inning in him. I was not surprised at all that he wasn't able to finish the fifth. He just looked like he was done. He was at 80 pitches. And by the fifth, his velocity was down. He was only throwing 90-91. And he goes two batters. It was like six pitches, and that was it. So yeah, you can say, hey, we're trying to save the bullpen. But what were the odds that Joe Ross was going to get through the fifth inning clean? It seemed very slim at that point.
3: Yeah, it seemed like his evening was over after Escobar's three-run homer.
0: Agreed.
4: Hey everyone, Al Galdi here to tell you about FanDuel. So we've all had that dream, right? Tie game, bottom of the ninth, base is loaded. Well, on FanDuel Sportsbook, you get more than one shot to swing for the fences because FanDuel is letting you place your first bet risk-free. That's right, new users get up to $1,000 back in site credit if your first bet doesn't win, and it only gets better from there. Once you have an account, you'll have access to same-game parlay insurance all season long. That's up to $25 back in side credit each day if your same-game parlay bet falls one leg short. This way, you can combine multiple baseball bets for an even bigger win. There's a reason that FanDuel Sportsbook is America's number one sportsbook. The app is simple to use. They've got great odds on all different betting markets, unique fun bet types like same-game parlay and always-on promotions to let you get more action out of every game day. And when you win, FanDuel will pay you your winnings in as little as 24 hours. Just download the FanDuel Sportsbook app and sign up with promo code CHAT. To get in on the action, that's FanDuel Sportsbook, promo code CHAT.
3: 21 plus and present, Colorado, Iowa, Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, or West Virginia. First on my real money wager, only for risk free bet. Refund issued as non withdrawable site, credit that expires in seven days. Restrictions apply, see terms at sportsbook.fanDuel.com. Gaming problem, call 1 522 4700 in Colorado, 1 100 bets off in Iowa. 109 with it Indiana One hundred two, seven zero, seven one one seven for confidential help in Michigan 100 gambler New Jersey Pennsylvania Illinois Virginia Tennessee eight hundred eight eight nine nine seven eight nine. or in West Virginia visit www100
0: net. Are you interested in buying or selling your home? Support for Nats Chat comes from Rachel Levy of Compass Real Estate. By focusing on the personal parts of the real estate process and using technology to simplify the rest, Rachel seamlessly guides her clients through their experience. Rachel uses her deep local knowledge and exceptional customer service to advocate for her clients all across D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. To learn more, follow her on Instagram at real Rachel.
3: Hey, Natch Night listeners, Tim Shovers here to tell you about Sunday Scaries CBD Gummies. If you're someone that struggles with sleeping, I cannot recommend this enough. I've been taking it the past few weeks, and I haven't slept this well in years. Whether you have a racing mind, lying awake at night, or just feel on the verge of a nervous breakdown, Sunday Scaries is always there for you. And I also want to thank everyone that has been using the promo code so far. Got a note from Sunday Scaries, and they said we've had listener participation. Can't thank you enough. Let's keep it up. Go to sundayscaries.com, use the promo code NATCHAT, get 25% off your first order. That's 25% off your first order at sundayscaries.com with the promo code NATCHAT. Again, one more time. Go to sundayscaries.com, put in the promo code NATSCHAT, and you'll save 25% off your first order. So do that for NATSCHAT, do that for yourself, and you'll sleep better than you have in years. Sunday is a very busy and important day for the organization, as at 1 o'clock in Trenton, New Jersey, Steven Strasburg is pitching for AAA, making a rehab start, and at 4 o'clock, Fetty's on the mound in Arizona against fellow right-hander Luke Weaver. I have two questions for you, Mark, based off that Sunday buffet. The first one is, if all goes well for Strasburg, let's say he throws five innings, only allows one hit, strikes out four, one walk, do you expect his next start to be next weekend in Nationals Park against the Orioles?
0: Yes, I do. I think as long as he gets through this one healthy, I don't even think the results matter that much. I think as long as he gets through it healthy, Gets five innings, gets the pitch count up there, you know, approaching 80, then yes, I think they will activate him and he'll pitch next week. Now, they're not going to say it up front going into it because if he does struggle at all, if he doesn't feel right, if, you know, if he has a couple long innings and they have to pull him after three, something like that, then you say, okay, maybe we need to have him do one more of these. But I think that is their ideal plan. As long as he feels all right and gets the right amount of workload on Sunday, then yes, I think his next start is for the Nationals.
3: Second question, is Eric Fetty straight up auditioning for his job tomorrow after Joe Ross has dropped off a bit, or is it fait accompli and regardless, if Strasper comes back, he's taking Fetty's spot in the rotation?
0: I think it's probably close to certainty that he takes Fetty's spot. Now, Joe didn't help his case on Saturday with that start, but I think he's done enough. I mean, it's been two bad starts now for Joe Ross, and the other ones, he's got an ERA under two. And maybe he hasn't looked perfect in all of them, but he's been effective. And, you know, remember going into the season, he was the favorite all along to be the fifth starter with Fetty and Voth on the outside looking in. So I think what we've seen so far suggests that Joe Ross deserves to stay in the rotation, pitch every fifth day. Now, ideally, Fetty could go pitch every fifth day in Rochester and stay on a starter's routine, but they can't do that because he's out of options, finally, after all these years. And there was a grievance filed against the team to make sure that, that would be the case after all those years that he was sent down. So now you're stuck and he's going to have to pitch out of the bullpen. And I don't think it's a great role for him. And I don't think it's going to leave him in the best position to take over if and when somebody else gets hurt or if they need a double header starter or whatever that might be. So it's not an ideal situation for him. But unless he is just lights out and has a phenomenal start against the Diamondbacks, or unless something else wacky happens in the next week, I think it's probably safe to say that Strasburg replaces Fetty and Fetty winds up in the bullpen and, and just hopes to still be able to contribute that way while staying fresh and available for them if they need him to start again down the road.
3: In terms of the rotation, a few things to keep in mind. There's no day off next week because it's a four-game series in Chicago. Plus, you also have Patrick Corbin who's on paternity leave, so not 100% he makes that start. Is there any any hesitation that he'll be there Tuesday night in Chicago because this would affect... Ross maybe pitching on Thursday in Wrigley Field. So, what's the status of Patrick Corbin on Tuesday, or could it be Paulo Espino?
0: Yeah. So, by all accounts, they expect to have him back. But you know, those first few days, you don't know what's going to happen <laughs> with the baby. Knock on wood, everything is fine and smooth, and and they can uh, head home, and then he can head to Chicago. But that is among the reasons that Paulo Espino was brought back. And Davey specifically said, if for some reason Corbin can't start on Tuesday at Wrigley Field, they will go with the Spino instead. So maybe that somehow affects Fetty, domino effect of all that. I suppose the other scenario would be that both Fetty and Strasburg could start games next weekend and and go with a six-man rotation for the moment. I don't think that would be a long-term solution here, but maybe for the moment they could do that just to buy some time. But all of these are the reasons why they're not just going to come out and say it yet. But if Strasburg pitches well and his rehab start, if Corbin and his wife are fine and the baby's fine, and he's able to rejoin them and nothing else crazy happens. I think it's just going to be a straight up Strasburg replacing him and the uh, rotation will be intact with those five who were supposed to be the five starters all along.
3: Before we wrap it up with some trivia, Mark, quick update from the farm. And I want your take on this. And it's uh, it's not been pretty if you've been following us on Twitter on the NatchChat podcast Twitter account. Jackson Rutledge got shelled again in high a Wilmington. His ERA is north of 11 through three outings so far. Low-way Fredericksburg is getting creamed on a daily basis. And the highest batting average in AAA Rochester is currently 241. And it's not Carter Keebam, by the way. Mark, <laughs> do you ever remember the minor leagues ever being this week for the
0: Nationals? Or is this an unusual year? Oof, this is pretty bad. Now, I mean... I, I can't claim that I always paid that close of attention to it. And, and one thing I'll say is that the last thing Mike Rizzo cares about is what his minor league affiliates records are. Okay, So Fredericksburg's 0-11, and, and their run differential is minus 86, and that is awful. And, and I, I feel sorry for everyone associated with the team and the fans down there who you know, had to wait last year. They didn't get to open the new ballpark. They finally get it this year, and the team down there is just not up to snuff with the rest of low A ball, and it's too bad. You hope that over time, this gets better for them. But Rizzo doesn't care about what their records are. He cares about development of the players. And so in that regard, you do have to look more on an individual level than on a team level. So as bad as the records are and the team batting averages and and all that stuff, you sort of shrug it off and say that's not really the goal of the minor league. So there is that. You know, Rutledge off to a rough start, that's not great. But He's still young. and This is kind of his first real experience with this. And this is why you don't rush some of these kids a little too fast. Uh, you know, you want to make sure they have a chance to have success at the lower levels. So the good news is Kate Cavalli has been great so far. You hope that Rutledge figures it out as well. The team down to Fredericksburg just does not have big name prospects at all for a variety of reasons, but those are not the future stars. Maybe somebody comes out of that group over time, but they're not the stars. And AAA often. Is uh, veterans and fringe players who you're just hoping are ready to be called up if you need them. And uh, again, in their case, especially the pitching staff there, they just do not have you know a lot of big name you know future stars. So it's rough. It's rough right now. We've heard in the off how they were ranked as the thirtieth farm system in baseball. And as much as the team tries to downplay that and say, well, that's not an accurate reflection of our talent. Well, so far, you know, it kind of does look like it. But there's time. It's an adjustment. All these guys didn't get to play at all last year, and so you have to take that into account. But more than anything, I'd say look at the individuals. Look at who the top five to 10 prospects in the organization are. See how they're doing. And most importantly, see what progress they make. They're only a few weeks into the season, so you don't want to judge it too much yet. Give them some time. But it has been painful to watch from afar, and you know it's not helping the organization when it comes to the reputation of their farm system, which came into this season about as low as they've ever come into it.
3: Okay, trivia, Mark. Filling in for Al, and this is this is my thing.
0: I can take it. It's late. It's like one a.m. as we're taping this, and so my mind isn't a hundred percent sharp. But let's go for it. I'll, I'll give it my my best effort here.
3: Well, you grew up on West Coast time, so hopefully you can uh, you can muscle through it for this one question here. And it has an Arizona tie to it. And no, it's not about Rowanis Elias, though I did want to oh. a- ask a question about him. But um, this dates back to 2012, first division championship for the Nationals, and. That season, Mark, they visited Arizona in August for a three-game weekend series, won two of three, but their lineup featured three different leadoff hitters that weekend. Can you name two of the three leadoff hitters for the Nats?
0: 2012. Ooh, okay. All right, I'm going to say that Jason Wirth was one of them because he did ultimately lead off for them at the end of the season and in the playoffs, so I'm going to hope that Jason Correct. Worth is one of them. And I think Bryce Harper was leading off sometimes that year. Am I right on Bryce Harper?
3: Not that weekend. I'll give no. you one more guess.
0: Ah, all right. Um, Ian Desmond was the opening day leadoff hitter, but that didn't last for long. So I don't think he was uh, still doing it. All right. 2012. Um, I don't think Rick Ankiel was still on the roster at that point. Not that he was ever a great leadoff hitter. How about a Steve Lombardozzi leadoff appearance?
3: Yes. Very good, Mark. All right. Danny Espinosa was the other one. Uh, so for a team that won 98 games, as you can see, <laughs> they did not have a true leadoff hitter the entire they season.
0: did not have a true leadoff hitter, and that was a, that was a funny thing because it wound up being Jason Worth. They went worth Harper Zim, I think was their one, two, three, most of the times in the uh, playoffs. and Davey Johnson had to finagle some things because it was not a traditional lineup. They really won on the strength of their pitching staff that year. The, the lineup got better as the year went on. Look at the, the April lineups for that team. I mean, Xavier Nady, Mark DeRosa, Roger Bernardina, these are guys who were playing prominent roles early that season. You would not have expected that would be a team that would win 98 games, but the rotation was so good that they were winning all their games. Because of that, the lineup got better as the season went on, and the bullpen was really good, at least until the ninth inning of game five against the Cardinals.
3: In game three of that series, the only one in which the Nats lost, the winning pitcher, Patrick Corbin.
0: Oh, okay, very good. Now wait, can I throw one more at you here? Did Michael Morse hit a grand slam in that series?
3: Uh, I'll have to look it up, but he did play right field one of those games, I can tell you that. So I will go look to confirm.
0: I feel like he hit one, or maybe Wilson Ramos hit one off the scoreboard at Chase Field and like really enjoyed his trip around the bases. I don't know if it was that year. It might have been a different year, but I remember Wilson Ramos just crushing a ball, maybe for a grand slam, off the scoreboard. And um, like I said, very much enjoying his trip around the bases, and I'm not sure the Dimebacks enjoyed that.
3: That's going to wrap it up for us here on that Chat Podcast. As I said, Al's going to be back at it for the series finale against Arizona. Anyone interested in sponsoring, especially if you own a local brewery, we are looking for a local beer sponsor. Email the That Chat Podcast. Nats Chat podcast at gmail.com for all advertising inquiries all radio highlights featuring charlie slows and dave jagler are courtesy of 1067 the fan thanks to everyone for listening in for emailing in for tweeting at us for downloading subscribing rating and reviewing we'll be back with you tomorrow after the nats conclude their series in arizona